to the open side. Karim Bete. Hufflegal here for Simon, who's quick. Pete Simon looking for Karim Bete. Back to Simon. Oh, that is wonderful. That is wild. That is amazing from the Wallabies. Hello and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby, where the people's podcast providing a platform for rugby lovers to come together and support the game that's played in heaven. I'm your host, Ando, back from Washington, D.C. With me is Mitch, as always. And Lockie, you're back from Tonga and also back from watching Lizzo in Melbourne, I believe. Yeah, well, that's the great thing about rugby. You fuse your passions. We're all, you know, <laughs> multifaceted people. And there's nothing better than rocking over around Tonga with the Aussie A-boys and then getting down to Melbourne to catch Lizzo. So there's the, there's the, modern, the modern Australia right there. It was up. Oh, but- both, I actually couldn't tell you what was better. Probably Aussie A at a pinch if we'd won. But amazing <laughs> experience over in Tonga. Um, incredible country. I was really, really lucky to be over there um, with the squad, helping out a bit for their media and government relations mm-hmm. and just had an unbelievable experience being able to see what actually goes on behind the scenes, what it takes to run a tour of any scale, um, blew me away. So it's amazing how much you don't know until you're in that environment as well. But some amazing coaching staff in there too. Um, you know, Jason Gilmore running the show, Lord mm. Laurie Fisher in there as well, Rod Sieb. Um, fantastic team. It was a bit of a hodgepodge of Super Rugby and Aussie and yep. previous experience across the globe, but great experience and, um, yeah, lifelong memories. And, of course, Lizzo. So how good? Doesn't get much <laughs> Hope- better. Hopefully and this was your good. opportunity to your bosses to kind of um, audition for the uh, Aussie A or uh, Barbarians tour later in the year. Oh, God, I'd love that. That'd be amazing. Um, no, I, we're going to wait and see. There's still a couple of things to be ironed out about who's going where. Um, I'd love to jump in someone's suitcase over to France, um, mm-hmm. but we'll wait and see. There's a lot of teams to cover across the year, so fingers crossed I'll get a shoulder tap for one of them. But here's holding out hope. He's definitely holding out hope. Now, I wanted to ask, Jason Gilmore or Lord Laurie Fisher, we've both, well, we've had the pleasure of interviewing them on the pod in the past. And, I mean, when they come on a pod, they're, they're always um, measured, they're pretty calm, showing great insights, happy to give their time. But who kind of were you most surprised by, maybe in terms of the way in which they will provide little insights and nuggets of gold to players in times of need, who had the special skill that you maybe didn't know they had before. Um, which of those two coaches did you get some special insights into? Well, both is a short answer. I had a really cool experience going down at the Tuesday training session at Daceyville before Aussie A team left, and they only had two sessions together before they went to Tonga. So it was very a slap-together team. And seeing uh, Laurie Fisher run scrum time and lineouts mm. was a fantastic experience for me um, playing in the forwards. I just loved every second of it, his intensity around scrum time in particular, and then going across and watching the way he manages um, your footwork into contact, uh, what side your clean-out's coming from, are you outside, are you inside, the specific roles he broke down so clearly, which was awesome to see up close and then in the lead up to the match especially friday morning thursday night uh being around the team environment and seeing jason gilmore talk through the key points ahead of the game time he had his presentation he was really effective at communicating with the guys about how much the game means to both players in the aussie a team like you know falau like uh, taniella like lucan like sam talakai mm-hmm. and then how much it meant to tonga it was the first game there in six years first international fixture and he was brilliant i thought in getting the team galvanized and prepared for that 
It might not have looked like it from the first half score, <laughs> but overall it was really cool to see um, Jason operate like that. So huge amount of respect for both of those men and the whole coaching staff. It was it was a really, really cool experience. Mate, it really sounds like it. And, well, we're going to dive into a few of those talking points, including that match, uh, in our kind of news section and, and looking through a bit of what's happened in the last week or two or is upcoming. So tonight what we're going to be covering is some noteworthy news from the last couple of weeks and stuff that's come out pretty recently. Then we're going to move to a Super Rugby Pacific review. So we're going to go through each of the Australian Super Rugby Pacific teams and give them a rating, a highlight, a most valuable player and a breakout player of the season. Before we have a bit of a conversation, a state of union as you might have it. Looking into um, the place of the wallabies and Australian rugby within the Australian sporting landscape, particularly through the lens of the current FIFA World Cup for the Matildas and kind of what that says about the place of rugby within Australia. So I'm very excited for that. And we might dive on into things before we say two quick, simple calls to action. So firstly, join our Discord channel to be a part of the best Australian rugby community going around. The link is on any of our social media channels. And lastly, please consider going to ko-fi.com slash pick and drive rugby and supporting us with a one-off or monthly payment well that's it team let's dive on into things let's go and we're back in the pick and drive newsroom with a bit of noteworthy news from the week that has been and gee, there's plenty to get through, actually. I know it's been a, a week off on the rugby field with regards to TRC, but there's been plenty going on. Um, Mitch, if we pull up these slides, we'll start with Lions Tour because it's the biggest thing going around in men's rugby after the World Cup. 2025, the British and Irish Lions have dropped their tour and it's a nine-game series. All the super rugby sides, three tests plus an Anzac-style match, an Invitational Australian and New Zealand 15 to play against the Lions at Adelaide Oval. Mitch, I'll throw it straight to you. First impressions of this roster for the tour? Oh, I'm, I'm happy. I've got to say, like, when they first... It was sort of uh, spoken about earlier this year around who was going to play the Lions and what the makeup of the tour would be, and there were talks that the Western Force or the Melbourne Rebels weren't going to be able to face them, that they weren't going to be enough competition-wise for them. So the fact that we have got all of our all five Aussie Super Rugby provinces facing off against the Lions, uh, whether the Anzac Invitational thing, uh, team is a good thing for Australian rugby or not, I'm still kind of not a hundred percent on. I would much prefer maybe like an Australia A or like they did last time when they had like a combined uh, New South Wales and Queensland country team playing the Lions. Something like that probably would add a little bit more benefit to Australian rugby instead of getting some. Uh, unpicked all blacks over and, and filling up a, a team with Australia A essentially. What are your thoughts, Ando? Mate, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was I thought it was brilliant in terms of playing all of the super teams. I really like the idea of the Anzac uh, test. I'm not sure how many of the top players from either team, well, from either country, I should say, will be present in that Anzac 15 or Anzac 23. But I just know it's going to be entertaining, and it's one of those things that we've um. We've spoken about for a while, 
the idea of an Anzac style team to be playing maybe some of the best from the Northern Hemisphere. And I guess we get that. And it does make me think that whether this will continue again in future competitions, in future British and Irish Lions tours over in New Zealand, whether or not we'll be invited over there to <laughs> participate in this similar match. Um, uh, you're so too kind, Ando. No, no chance. Oh, look, you, you bloody hope so. If we're inviting them over here for our tour, then maybe they should reciprocate. But um, yeah, I was, I was really excited for it and uh, wondering how cheap I can get memberships at other clubs like the Brumbies to be in the line for a ticket down the track. <laughs> and if you're looking for a ticket, Wallabies' first memberships are out now via the Wallaby shop. Um, but in all seriousness, though, what is it's that? really... What is that? that? <laughs> It's the part of their membership packages. I'll have a look. It's not my department, frankly. It's $1,800 um, was... to get yourself in line with for a chance to get a ticket. That's all. And and a, That's two, a, a membership 200. pack when it comes out. There you go. It's 200 bucks. Well, get it now. Wallaby's first membership. <laughs> Sorry, anyway. It's, anyway. No, it's 1800 I was just really pleased to see that they've all gone to big stadiums. When you go through the list, you know, they're playing in Perth, they're playing at Optus. In Melbourne, they're doing the MCG and for the Rebels game, it's at Marvel. And then they've got Adelaide Oval on the list as well, plus two games at Suncorp. So this is big stadiums, huge appeal. And they're estimating something like 40,000 travelling Poms all coming along. Well, not just the Poms, all the Irish, Welsh, Scottish as well, all rolling on down for a massive tour. Um, No sight of the combined Pacific team that was originally Mm. muted uh, muted a while ago, Mitch. What was your take on that one? Well, I guess when they how many tests can the Lions fit in and whether they're able to play a test against the Pacific Nations. Probably logistics comes into a little bit, whether they're going to be able to fill the combined side, whether it would be Moana Pacifica or some amalgamation like that. I guess I, as a as an Australian rugby fan, I'd much prefer to see the Lions play the Western Force as opposed to if it was one or the other. Um, I'd prefer, and I'm happy that they are playing all of our provinces as opposed to a combined Kiwi side and a combined Pacific Island side losing the opportunity for the Rebels and the Force to play. Yeah, totally agreed. And on Aussie rugby as well, we're covering a lot of that. But quickly looking at the squad, the Bledisloe Cup squad, 34-man side that Eddie Jones has announced for the two-game series. Um, A couple of big ins with Jordan Pattaya, Taniela Tupo, Andrew Kellaway and Lange Gleeson back in the side, but at the expense of some big names with the Mm. likes of Tom Wright. Uh, Pete Samu and Reese Hodge among those missing out. Ando, are you surprised to see a couple of those fullback options disappear? Um, I'm in a way disappointed to see Tom Wright go because I've always been a bit of a champion of his. Uh, but I understand that he hasn't set the world alight in the opportunities he's had, particularly in the last two games. So I can see the reason why he's gone. It's, what surprises me is a combination of Wright and Hodge missing out as well they're both two fullback options both of them going Mm. is indicative both the the coaching staff are pretty confident of Kellaway and Pattaya's fitness so um, if you were doubting whether or not they'd be able to make it through this run of games and sure you'd be keeping one of Hodge or well particularly Hodge really because he can fit anywhere in the back line sure you would keep him if you doubted um, the the fitness of some of the returning players so yeah definitely surprised about Tom Wright's omission yeah, for sure. And Mitch, looking at those inclusions as well, big hole at 13 with Lennon how confirmed to be out between six to eight weeks. Does a Geordie Pattaya potentially come in as a 13 or would that fall to someone like an Izzy Parisi who's been on the fringes? Personally, I would prefer to see Parisi 
get named there not because just not the fact that he's a waratah and um that that speaks volumes anyway but uh he's been in the squad already uh so when i was out at combank last week he would uh parisi and blake shop were the 24th and 25th man so they warmed up with the with the players and once the team went into the the change room to get their jerseys on and, and get ready for the game they sort of got run through their um paces right in front of us where we were sitting so uh they have both of those players have been in the squad and have been around know the calls know the sets up setups whereas a player like Jordi Pattaya is coming back from injury first position the first opportunity against the All Blacks that's a huge ask and then potentially essentially playing him out of position from where he's been in Super Rugby this year as well that's a big ask and I don't think Eddie would do that just yet um but I do think that he is Pattaya is an option to cover 13 should an injury happen. Um, the big one for me that's really confusing is Pete Samu not being included in the squad, particularly considering that uh, Michael Hooper is out with a quad injury and the reports come out came out today that it looks like he's not going to be fit for Bled 1 and that he's only going to potentially be ready for Bledslow 2. Now that means that we've only got Fraser McWright as an open side flanker. Uh, Pete Samu for mine was a great option to play anywhere in the back three, uh, without him, we've got Lange Gleeson, but I don't see him being as versatile, being able to play six or seven if the need arose. What are your thoughts around that? It's an interesting one for mine, because as you mentioned, Pete just has that coverage across the back row. And as far as, you know, winning titles is concerned and winning big games, you've got a bloke coming across from the Crusaders into the Brumbies. They're two of the better systems going around and then heading into an enormous game in Melbourne where last year he was probably one of the Wallabies' best of field in that game down at Marvel Stadium, scored that fantastic try back and forth with Corabetti. So, I mean, I'm surprised to see him out, but massive opportunity for Lange Gleeson, huge shoes to fill, and you imagine that he'll have to slot in as an eight or coming off the bench with probably, what, big Bobby V, Fraser McWright, and then six looking largely like a Jet Holloway perhaps. What do you reckon, Nando? Yeah, Jed Holloway or Rob Leota at six, probably Jed just for that continuity level there. Um, it's interesting to see yeah, Gleason come back into the squad. He's had some really great showings and opportunities, but has been out for a little bit with injury. Um, Hooper's calf, I believe it was actually, his calf obviously has played him out of selection despite his very confident statements that he'd be available and back for, for this weekend's game. Um, I, it just shows you the value of Fraser McWright and how well Australian rugby has done to keep him in the frame as well, even though he's been behind Michael Hooper for so long. I think that's one of kind of the successes that Australian rugby have been able to do in terms of making sure a player of his uh, caliber has been well supported enough to wait and bide his time. So with Hooper being out, he's really got the opportunity now to step in and make this jersey um, something that Hooper has to really fight for to get back. Absolutely. And that segues nicely, actually, looking at McWright. And he's a product of one of our pathway systems through the Junior Wallabies. And that's exactly what we're turning to now with news that Sansar is opening up their wallets and they're looking at uh, Junior Sansar TRC. So the under 20s from 2024, it's been confirmed. Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and Argentina will play a three-week tournament on the Gold Coast. It's been mooted as a bit more of development and some deepening of that junior pathway and that junior competition worldwide. We've seen they've just come off the uh, under-20s world championship in South Africa where the junior Wallabies came fifth after what I thought was a really good campaign. But 
I mean, Mitch, yep. this has got to be good news for our pathways. Yeah, we spoke about it a few weeks ago, you and I, um, when we were breaking down the under-20s and how they've performed in this in South Africa. Uh, I personally would have preferred to see this incorporated into the match day experience for the rugby champs. And, and we sort of, when we spoke about it, we had like a three, a triple header, essentially under 20s at three o'clock, Wallaroos at five or six o'clock, and then Wallabies kicking off at, at seven or eight. Uh, but the fact that we're at least getting some form of competition for these guys consistent every year to be played uh, from 2024 is a step in the right direction. Uh, why we haven't done it already is one of those questions where you sort of ask, we just keep in rugby, keep asking, why do we not have these pathways established? Other nations have it done so well. The Europe up in the six nations, they've had it under twenties for a few years now. So we're behind the times, but the fact that we are now getting this competition up and running is a step in the right direction. For sure. And with those under twenties, and uh, we've seen recent names like Nick Frost, McWright, Harry Wilson, Tate McDermott, uh, there's a slew of wallabies who have come through that system now. A competition like this can only increase our chances of more wallabies coming through. Definitely. I mean, you look at the strength of France at this current point in time within the Rugby World Cup cycle, and a huge number of their players have been absolutely dominant in the junior pathways in uh, in their kind of progress coming up through the national squads. And so we talk about the Australian... Uh, what year were they? The 2018? 2019. 2019. 2019 cohort of um, McWrights et al. And they actually lost in the final to the French team, to the France team. And so it just shows you the value that these junior pathways have. And so I absolutely love this. I think it's a great, great opportunity. Um, and I might actually steal a little bit, a bit of your planning thunder here, mate, but I actually think it ties in really well with the Australia-Japan uh, Memorandum of Understanding that was signed, I think it was last week. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a fantastic opportunity. Any of these relationship-building exercises that we're starting to see, the Kiwis have done one with Japan, we've now signed one, having a Sansa competition for juniors. We're seeing Australian rugby, I think, starting to flex its muscle a little more and say, hey, we have influence in this space too. We want our pathways to be supported in this regard. And we'll touch on that Japanese deal a bit later on, but you know, it's just great to see more rugby at the end of the day. The more rugby we're playing, the better our players are going to get, the more battle-hardened they're going to be, regardless of what age, what game, what gender they're playing in. It's an awesome opportunity. So it's great to see. But Mitch, do you want to take us through the last two of the news? Because I'm already sick of talking. All right. Well, this first one's going to be an exciting one for you, Lockie. The Queensland Reds have announced their head coach for next year. Now, I actually haven't. I was I was going to go back and, and read today, but I didn't get a chance. How long has have they signed him for? Do, do you know, Ando? Uh, three years. No, but I believe from the numbers that's being held up, it's three years. Three years. So uh, Les Kiss from London Irish fame has been appointed as the Queensland Reds head coach from twenty twenty four, or effective immediately, really. Um, Lockie, you're the resident Queensland fan here. What are your thoughts around this appointment? How convenient that it's been thrown to me. Oh, awesome. <laughs> uh, no, I, I really like it. I really like it. I had a look through um, Les's sort of track record as a player in, um, in league where he was an origin player um, and going through the grades as a coach with the Tars through some of those good years, sort of 05 through 08. I think he was there even earlier than that. 
and then across in Europe and he's had his stints across with uh, in the Irish rugby for a long time and then, of course, with London Irish before coming over. But he's clearly got runs on the board as far as coaching pedigree afield, whether he's capable of turning the Reds from their potential into world beaters. Well, we're not sure, but at least he's got three years to try and make it happen. It's not a one-year deal where it's a sink or swim and there's that instant pressure. Um, and what we've heard already is that the players had a lot more say with the actual coaching appointments. Um, Liam Wright came out in the media and said that, yes, that he as a co-captain sat in on some of those last-round interviews and was able to put forward the player's perspective, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so we'll have to wait and see when it comes to um, Les Kiss and how he goes down at Ballymore. Um, but I'll, I'll only be around the corner um, in the bullpen somewhere in there. So I'll keep an eye out and I'm very interested to see how it all plays out. Amanda, what do you reckon about this? Mate, I'm very, very excited for it. Um, it's all good. I heard, I heard the question. Basically, I think what the Reds have needed for a while is an experienced coach to come in because as much as we can really value what Brad Thorne has done with this Reds team over a while, um, it seems that he kind of reached the limit of what his experience and skill set was able to do with driving this Reds team forward. And in Les Kiss, the Reds have appointed a really experienced coach. He was, he was at the Waratahs, which obviously sets him up for great success moving forward. Um, he went over and was involved as assistant coach for Ireland and then um, London Irish and got them to finish, what was it, fourth or fifth um, last season, yep. which was their highest in the last like 15 years that they'd actually finished within a premiership. And so he obviously is a well-credentialed, well-experienced coach coming into a and in a cultural environment that he understands and knows. So there won't be that kind of cultural adaption that might have been required from maybe a British or a Scottish or somebody different coach. So I really think it's a good, a good call. And um, I'm very keen to see how the Reds progress under him because they've, they've had potential for the last two to three seasons but haven't really met that potential and um, I'm hoping that for the good of Australian rugby he can really really increase their achievement. I think it's really handy as well what Queensland rugby has done by essentially uh, emptying their roster before he arrived so that all of their talent has shifted across to the force or the rebels and he's kind of got a blank slate that he can come in and pick and choose the players that are left over from overseas to kind of form his 15 for next year. Do you think there's a few (laughs) players that he's going to jump on and try and get into into Ballymore as soon as possible, Lockie? Oh, yeah, Joseph Sualee'i, Cameron Murray. You know, they're opening the checkbook, aren't they? Yeah. Rolling out all these leagues. No, I'm, I'm interested. It's um obviously I'm gutted by all the players that have signed away from, um, from Ballymore, putting on my Reds hat. But, look, I think it's pretty exciting. There's clearly people who were either on Team Thorn or they weren't on Team Thorn, and this is a good opportunity for Les Kiss to start a fresh release for a year. Well, don't call it a comeback straight away, but I think over the next three, it's a really exciting time. We've got players like the McDermott's, the Wilsons, the both Wrights coming through, the Wright and McWright, um, now coming into their mid-20s to late-20s, and they're the leaders. They're seasoned now. They've had that opportunity at Wallaby level, the Reds, and now it's their turn to go, right, we're in charge here. We need to start carrying this team and acting like it. So it's a really good test of character over the next few years, the Reds, and I'm excited to see how it goes. One bit of news that's come out today that we haven't got up on the the screen at the moment is Brandon Pangramosa is apparently very close to signing a deal with the Western Force. Now, Lucky, you would probably hoping that he'd be going back to 
the Queensland Reds and that hasn't come through at this point. But what it does open is a door and a chance for him to feature for the Wallabies at the World Cup this year. Endo, do you think that that's a realistic uh, or realism that might come to pass, that we might see Brandon Pangramosa parachuted straight back into the squad and wearing the gold jersey again within a few weeks? Uh, No. (laughs) To put it pretty simply, no, because I don't think he's got the time with the squad or with the players that he's going to be playing alongside in recent years. And so whilst he's had a lot of time and a lot of experience at Montpellier, so he played uh, 24 games for them last year, uh, he was coming, he started more than 50% of those, but I just think that with the lack of connection that he's going to have with the players within the squad and the lack of time he's got to impress um, Eddie Jones, I just don't think it's going to happen. Lockie, any any thoughts before we finish up with the Oz Japan deal? Oh, it, it's a similar boat. I mean, he's a, he's a winner. He, he's got a top fourteen gong from twenty twenty two with Montpellier. Yeah. Um. So I mean, you could you've got to put that down to something, and it's constantly frustrating actually, but exciting to see these Australian players go overseas, and all of a sudden they're in winning setups, <laughs> and they're getting these big accolades, and they're becoming recognised, and that's great. Um. I just want them to do it here. So if BPA is going to roll into a squad and bring a winner's mentality and start winning us big games in a World Cup, then by all means, chuck him in. But I think Ando's probably right, just about team cohesion, um, throwing in someone late who hasn't even had this shortened TRC to get ready. I think it's probably on a hiding to nothing. And you've got, I mean, Hooker's an interesting one, really. Like We could probably have a whole podcast about the current hookers that we've got available. But, I mean, Dave Parecki, Yulesi, Faisler, Feinga, Lonigan. Has anyone really put their hand up yet and said it's mine? Maybe BPA is an outside chance. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few weeks. And we've still got three games until the World Cup starts. So there still is an opportunity. There is still a chance that one of those players or multiple of those players pick up injuries and and aren't able to feature for the first few weeks of the World Cup. Um, Let's finish off the news because we have been going for a little bit, and that is the Australia-Japan deal. So... As Rugby Australia announced a deal last week um, signing on with Japan Rugby that confirms fixtures between the Wallabies, the Wallaroos, Australia A and the Junior Wallabies from the years 2024 until 2029. Uh, quite similar to what was already signed by New Zealand Rugby last year, this deal at least is starting to strengthen the ties between the two nations. And oh, this is a good thing in terms of um, commercial viability for Australian Rugby. What positives do you think we might see outside of continue uh, continually playing Japan more frequently? Look, I think if, if we take that question there from being one focused on the Wallabies, I think more opportunities for game time for the Wallaroos, Aussie and under-20s is going to be really, really valuable. And if we have another country nearby that's willing to get as many games um, happening as possible for those uh, those other teams, that is incredibly important for the development of both women's rugby, but also just general um, rugby within Australia in a broader sense. The thing that I am particularly hopeful for is if this um, memorandum of understanding had maybe just some quiet late night beer conversations about looking at a Champions League style competition with Australia, New Zealand and Japan after Super Rugby Pacific finished. Um, that is just the thing we should be hoping for, um, or maybe even integrated as kind of off weeks or midweek fixtures within, but just something, something above what we currently have with Super Rugby would just be incredible. And hopefully this is the first step along that pathway. And Lockie, Japan signed a similar deal with New Zealand last year. 
How long do you think it'll be before we see Japan and Fiji included into an expanded rugby championship? It, it feels like we're, oh, we're getting closer and closer. Yeah, I've no doubt that's in the near future. I feel as though for rugby's commercial success, having a six-team format that mirrors Six Nations, that matches it commercially and brings in that huge Japanese market is going to happen at some stage, whether it's under, you know, driven by an Aussie administration, a Kiwi, Argentinian, whatever it is, there's so much money sitting over there in Japanese rugby all soaked up into those big heavy-hitting clubs. And if we're not getting in through a champion-style cup, and please, if you want to go into that, have a look on Scrum Bags. I deep-dived it way too much <laughs> and laid out on score and everything. Um, but I feel as though that's going to happen in the near future. And I'd like it to happen. I mean, Japanese rugby is fantastic. The, the style that they play and the brand that they have after the past two World Cups is globally recognised. And the Flying Fijian brand is very strong too. So it's good for both of those countries. If it's good for us commercially, then I'd love to see it happen in the not-too-distant future. But, yeah, Champions Cup, how good would it be to have, you know, Quade Cooper and Will Guinea come back down in a Kintetsu jersey playing in Sydney against the Tars or you flip it around and all the um, fellas over at Toyota Verblitz, you know, the Bowden Barretts and the Aaron Smiths going back and playing in Eden Park. I mean, there's, there's so much potential in a Pacific Champions Cup-style event, and I'd love to see that. Yeah, fantastic. Now, we we have been going on a little bit uh, of a while with the news, and there is so much more news to talk about, so we might get to those in future weeks. But for now, let's um, finish the news section there and then dive into our Super Rugby Pacific wrap-up. Awesome. Let's go. All right, we're going to be hitting up the Super Rugby Pacific review. Basically, Australian rugby had a year. They, they definitely had a year, and, and there were some good moments within that year. And uh, as a Waratahs fan, there were pretty disappointing moments within that year as well. And what better way to do this than to just kind of rip the bandit off with your friends, and let's take a look at the ladder. So, out of a 12-team competition, we had the Melbourne Rebels finish 11th. They won four matches out of their 14, lost 10, obviously, and had a minus 78 for and against record for 21 points. Western Force, congratulations, you won five games, lost nine, minus 148, and 22 points, finishing in 10th. So we had two Australian teams in 11th and 10th. We then had the Queensland Reds sneak into the top eight finals with, similar to the Force, Five wins, nine losses, minus 60 points for 24 points overall. The Waratahs kind of stumbled their way into sixth place with six wins, eight losses, minus 21 for 31 more, 31 points overall. And the Brumbies. The Brumbies were the shining light of Australian rugby in 2023, except they kind of fell down the ladder in the last three weeks of the season to finish fourth giving up the home semi-final with 10 wins, 4 losses, 81 points positive and 46 points overall. So what we are going to do is we're going to go in reverse order. So we're going to start with the Melbourne Rebels. And the first thing that I would like us to do is to give the Rebels season a score out of 10. So Lockie, what is your score out of 10 and why? And then Mitch, I'll be throwing to you straight after. Uh, I gave him a three and a half out of 10. Uh, and I would have loved to have given them higher, but they just didn't win any games. Um, I couldn't give them a 4 out of 10 because that was their record. So realistically, <laughs> you're looking at it, um, you know, 
averaging close to 35 points against a game. It started with a two and three record after five rounds and then it all sort of went down the toilet. And after all the hype and all the near misses, they couldn't get it done. So it was a disappointing season, three and a half. Much like Jordan Ulessi, they they were the prints that were promised. They they had so many good moments within this within matches within the season, but they were rarely able to capitalize on those opportunities. And they were renowned for the second half fades. And unfortunately, that was really a defining feature of their season. I also gave them well, I gave them a four out of ten. So I didn't go the point five, but I gave them a four. Mitch, what was your rating and uh, why? I really wanted to give them a six. Um, and purely because I didn't expect them, I wanted to, but I'm going to have to give them a four. Um, I wanted to give them a six because I didn't expect a whole lot from them in the season. And when they started out, they actually had a fair, fairly few good games early on, beat the Tars at home. Um, and then, you know, they pushed the, the Hurricanes at Super Round and they were competitive and they showed throughout the season and they built into their season, but they showed that they were able to play some really good and exciting footy. And they were a team that I wanted to watch. The frustrating thing and why I can't go any higher than a four or a five is that, as we said before, they haven't, they just didn't win enough games. They were in games and they played well and they started off well, but they just faded and they just weren't able to ice games off yep. late. Which then takes us into the highlight of the season for each of us. And for me, my season highlight was that match you just mentioned. The Strangely enough, was a loss, loss to the Canes in Super Rugby. And it was just because of the second half fight back and the, the passion that they exhibited and the desire to win the game. After really kind of getting blown off the park in the first half, going in 24-7, and then fighting back to be 33-34 to 34 with seven minutes or five minutes remaining within the game was, was really impressive uh, within within their season. And it was basically Artis, Arti Sevilla that kind of uh, won that game with his anger for, for the Hurricanes. Now, Mitch, was that your highlight as well or were you going to name a different one? I'll go with the tar- the victory of the Tars in round three. So that, um, that was a very season-defining moment, I thought, that Hurricanes game and... They could have either gone one of two ways after a loss like that. They showed a lot of promise at home when the rugby world was watching because it was super round. They could have sort of gone into themselves and not put in a good performance, but they didn't. They did the opposite. They came out and they played really clinically against the Waratahs and they beat them. So um, for me, that was the season highlight. And I don't think we saw them play as well for the rest of the season and as clinical and able to put the opposition under pressure and finish things off as much as they did in that Tars game. Lockie, season highlight? Yeah, I think Mitch is probably bang on with the Tars game as far as their best performance, but I think their highlight was actually going across to Auckland. Um, it seems cheap saying, oh, you beat Moana, they only won one game, but that was a game that Moana was absolutely smashing the Rebels in, and the Rebels came out and just really drove it home, and it was a game that they had to win to keep their finals hopes alive, and that win away across the ditch, even, yes, against Moana, but you've got to respect all opponents, and that showed that they do have a bit of grit. They just need to show it every week. So that, to me, was the most impressive performance. Very well said. Lockie, continue with the MVP. Uh, Dickie Hardwick, hands down. I thought he was excellent and the most consistent player all year. I think Brad Wilkin ran a close second, did a really good job of standing skipper at seven, never stopped trying. But Richard Hardwick's value, both sides of the ball, um, his ball carrying and his feet in contact, I thought, have been massively improved in the past two years. And he's still such a strong presence uh, as a jackal. So, yeah, um, massive MVP for me and keen to see him in action for Namibia at the World Cup. 
Exactly. Stole my thunder, mate. About to say that. Mitch, who is your MVP? Um, I think I was really impressed with Ekowasi when he came across from um, from Auckland yeah. and had some really good involvements for them. Uh, I'm a little tied with another player, but I think I might save him for the breakout in the next section. So we'll speak about him in a moment. Brilliant. And my MVP was also going to be, it was a toss up between Dickie Hardwick or Carter Gordon. Um, and for me, Dickie Hardwick gets it because I've never seen a player get as red when he gets angry as Dickie Hardwick. So he looks <laughs> like a tomato when he plays and I absolutely love it. Let's move now to breakout player and my breakout player um, I'm not sure, like, I'm just, I didn't know what, um, what, what parameters we were using for our breakout player, like, claim, but I'm going to say it was Josh Cannon, because he was relatively, relatively inexperienced coming into this season, and with the injury to Matt Phillip and then Trevor Hosea as well to start the season, the locking department basically rested upon his shoulders, and he stepped up throughout the season and was consistent and effective both in the line-out and general carry and general play. So I was really impressed with Josh Cannon, and I'm looking forward to seeing him develop. Mitch, who was yours? Sorry, I muted myself. Um, I was gonna, I'm was i going with Carter <laughs> Gordon for breakout player. I thought he was yep. neck and neck as MVP as well, but um, I thought Echo RC kind of came out of nowhere. So for me, uh, I'll say Carter Gordon because he's been in the Rebels for a few years now and he's had patches. And we know from two years ago that the Rebels really sort of mismanaged his um, season and his game time. But this year, he's just gone leaps and bounds. And we're starting to see that now for the Wallabies, that he's just playing any position that Eddie throws him in with confidence. Um, and when he got injured in the season and he wasn't there, the whole Rebels team struggled. Lucky. Yeah, Mitch is bang on there. It's got to be Carter Gordon. I thought uh, Kemeny had a really good season as well. He'd probably been flying under the radar before this year um, and could have had it. Cannon was good. Lockie Anderson also was pretty impressive, although he's been around for a little longer. But yeah, Carter Gordon's a shoe-in for that one. He um, stole the show and probably would have been MVP without Dickie there. Very well said. Very well said. Well, let's move on now to the Western Force, who, uh, just to repeat, they finished in 10th place 22 points, winning five games throughout the season. So my rating, I'll, I'll jump in here to start with, was four out of 10. Uh, they were very, very impressive at home, but outside of home could do absolutely nothing. And so that was pretty disappointing for them. They also struggled with injury and also just their roster in a general sense, having to parachute all the players in from overseas throughout different parts of the season. It just seemed like they were a, a ragtag rabble brought together. I am looking to see how... The, interested to see how they improve but Lockie what was your season rating for the Western Force? I gave them a five I thought um, they couldn't go any higher because they missed finals um, but I was really impressed with their home record I like that HBF's mm. becoming somewhat of a mini fortress um, I guess we're not, probably not quite at fortress status maybe Citadel no what's smaller moat we'll give them moat status <laughs> Fort. Um, give them a moat status you can swim across it if you're the Chiefs um, but yeah, look, they're beating the Highlanders, the Brumbies, the Drewer at home. You know, they're all important games for them, which was good to see. But the travel load, I mean, that three-game tour of New Zealand took it out of them. Um, injuries throughout. You had an interesting roster. And, the, and go back and have a listen to the chat that you guys had um, at the start of the year with Crony. It was fantastic to see how they're trying to manage that list. But I think five out of ten is probably appropriate with a five and nine record. Um, but yeah, some of those games, like the... Super round loss to the Reds was hard viewing, and that's me as a Queenslander. So it was a mixed bag for me. Very well said. Uh, Mitch, your season rating? Yeah, I'll give them a five too. I don't think we can go – you can't get higher than a five out of ten if you don't make finals in a 
in, in the competition that Super Rugby is this year. And as Lockie said, their home record is outstanding. Uh, other than that final round loss to the Chiefs, they, did, they didn't let any other team get the, the chockies against them. So um, for that alone, five. Uh, we'll move into now the highlight. And I think if anybody doesn't have beating the Brumbies, 34 to 19 here, then then you've got it wrong. You look at the Brumbies roster and it's not as though they sent across an absolute Muppet team. You've got Blake Shop, Billy Pollard, Reese Van Neck, Darcy Swain, Tom Hooper, Charlie Cale, Rory Scott, and Pete Samu in the forwards. Like That is a strong forwards team, even without, say, Alatoa or um, James Slipper. But they got blown off the park in the first 25 minutes with the force scoring three tries in 25 minutes. Uh, Lockie, what was your season highlight for the force? Oh, it's got to be that. It's got to be that. Yeah. Um, I think the fact more, less that they won and more that they backed up their chat. Um, everyone loved mm. that pregame uh, interview with Flavangar having a dig at his old teammates. And it was great. It was really good to see. Um, so, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, beating the Brumbies doesn't get much better than that. Mitch? Uh, I'll go with the victory against the Highlanders. We were hoping we needed the uh, our bottom two teams to be competitive against their bottom team. Uh, and the fact that they weren't, they didn't just sneak that victory, they they beat them 30 to 17 is um, goes to show where they have the developments they've made in the last few years and that they have sort of, in some ways, cemented their place in this competition. So, um, yeah, that's my one. Thank the gods for the Highlanders to prove that not all is lost. All right, moving into the MVP uh, for mine, Sam Spink. Absolute find for the season, has been absolutely dominant in that um, kind of outside centre position, both in the carry and in defence. Really impressive player. Absolutely loved his opportunities this year. Mitch? Uh, Can you go to Lockie first? I'm trying to remember his name. Lockie. Um, Speaks a good shout, but I went with Jeremy Williams. I thought it's really good to see someone fill the hole that um, Thrushy left. And it's going to be a while before you call a young second rower an enforcer, but I really like what Jeremy Williams offers at set piece. He's been pretty solid and reliable, and that's what I like in a second rower. You don't have to you know, bust the world apart just yet. And um, I think there's good enough signs, and he was consistent through the season. So he's my MVP. Excellent. Mitch? I'm not sure if I've combined my MVP with my breakout player, but um, I'll go with Max Bury. I, I didn't expect a whole yeah, lot nice. from him when he came across from the shoot shield and... I mean, Crony didn't make it any easier for him either, throwing him in in his second game against starting against the Crusaders. But he didn't look out of place at this level, and he shows, and he's been rewarded with a contract, an extended contract with the Force, which is good to see he's sticking around. Um, but he didn't look out of place at this level, and he's only going to get better with the more game time that he gets. And he backed up that match in his third game with uh, the win at home against the Brumbies as well, who were second or third on the ladder at that point in the season. So that was really impressive. So my breakout player was actually either a combination of Max Bury or Sam Spink. I couldn't decide uh, between the two. Max Bury only played five games throughout the season, so that's why I didn't include him as the kind of MVP option within there. But within those five games, he was very, very impressive for a shoot shield level fly half, stepping up into Super Rugby. So, Lockie, who is your breakout player? Not very original, but, yeah, it's Bury. I thought it was uh, a really, really good start to his Super Rugby career, and it also shows the value of having not a mature age player, but someone in their mid-20s who's played a bit of shield, who's had a bit of experience playing against bigger bodies, 
to then come into Super Rugby rather than throwing in a teenage playmaker. He was really assured. His goal-kicking was sound. He had that great chip-and-chase try. I think it was against the Chiefs in the last round, so he's not a he's not a stand-and-distribute kind of fly-half. He takes the line on. He's got some tricks up his sleeve. So I think he's got a big future, and it's really good to see him coming out of those pathways um, through North's shoulder tap from Cronny and um, making the most of his opportunity. And Mitch, did you combine your MVP and breakout player as Max Beery or did you have No, I'll go with Carlo Tizano as my breakout player. I guess he couldn't be considered an MVP purely because he only played, what, the last four games of the season or uh, whatever it was for the four. So I'll say breakout player in that when he came back from Europe, he didn't, he just went straight back into the form that he was at the Waratahs before he left. And if anything's probably gotten better in that time and, uh, I I put him straight into my fantasy team and he definitely got me enough points of the last few victories of the season, which helped me beat Ando. So that point alone is why he's my... Moving on quickly. There. Moving on quickly. Although I will say, I love how you say that um, Paolo Tizano with four games can't be included as an MVP, but Max Beery with five games can. So I'm loving the distinction between the amount of games played there. But the Reds... Moving on into the Reds, they finished eighth on a ladder, five wins, nine losses, 24 points overall with a minus 60 points for and against. My season rating for them was five out of 10. I did not think they were particularly impressive outside of the win against the Chiefs. They did not beat any team higher up on the ladder than them. Um, It was really, or at least within top four or five on the ladder. It was a season where I think they underperformed um, and there might be some valid reasons for that. But either way, I don't think it was a stellar season. Mitch, what was your rating? I'm going to go with six and that's purely for the two performances against the Chiefs. I think outside of that, I'm looking at five. But the fact that they were able to push the Chiefs as far as they did in that quarterfinal as well and what was it, like three or four points towards the end there? The game was definitely in the balance and had they got the upset, we're looking at... A crazy result, and we're talking about an eight or nine score season purely for the fact that they kicked out the team that came first in the quarterfinals. So uh, outside of that, it was a pretty poor season for the Reds overall, but the two performances they put in against the Chiefs elevates it to six. And Lockie? I'm almost certain Mitch is reading off my run sheet at the moment. He's stealing all my (laughs) points. Um, I, I ended up going with five and a half. I split the difference because it was a pretty poor season across the across the um, regular rounds. Um, but the two games against the Chiefs pulled them up. They they lost so many games they probably should have won. Like Brumby's round three was in the balance, Rebels round five, the Highlanders game where they needed to bank that to get a win and then getting pumped by the Drewer in the last round and sneaking into finals. They had so many opportunities that they didn't take. But two games against the Chiefs in New Zealand, you're thinking these guys are almost, you know, definitely top six, could be pushing higher if they played like this week in, week out. So, yeah, I'm just, I don't know what to make of it. Truly, five and a half, and we'll pick it up next year. And, Lockie, was your season highlight the Chiefs' performance, like Mitch's probably is and mine definitely is? Yeah, let's skip through. It's obviously beating the Chiefs. Obviously the Chiefs. All right, let's move on to the MVP for the season. And I'm going to highlight, this was a really hard one, insofar as you had um, some really good candidates for it, but I'm going to say Tate McDermott, just in terms of there's nobody else within their team that can do what he does. And without him, the Reds look entirely different. Players like Harry Wilson and Fraser McWright, I'm not saying they're replaceable, but their replacements are still good players, whereas I think there's a massive drop-off to a player like Kalani Thomas from Tate McDermott. 
So he was my MVP. Lockie, who was yours? Oh, it's a dead heat between McWright and Wilson for me, but I got to pick one. So I go with Wilson. His 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 work rate was just immense, and we actually saw when he came off the bench as well for a couple of those games, and Uru started and laid a good platform. Um, Big Harry just came on and went ballistic, and he's still picking yep. up you know ten to twelve carries and a half, and getting over the game line and getting through his work. So whether we see that translate into gold, you know that's. Uh, debate for someone in a much higher position than we are and making more money. Um, but at a super rugby level, he is a very, very good number eight. Mitch? Uh, I'll go with Matt Fassler. I think he had an incredible season yeah, cool. and just built from built his way into it and got better and better in the end and was very instrumental in those wins for them against the Chiefs. Uh, so, yeah, Matt Fassler. I actually had him and then crossed him out uh, and replaced him with McDermott uh, because I wanted to have him as my breakout player, Matty Faisler, because for me, breakout players, one that's their performances in some ways have kind of come from nowhere or come from a place where I didn't expect them to be as good as they, as they have been. And with the injury to Taniela Tupo and just a general weakness or the perception of weakness that we had of the Reds type five, his importance and his growth throughout the season and the impact he had in keeping that Reds tight five uh, stable within the scrums and his line-out throwing was pretty solid as well. He, in my mind, was the player that had the kind of biggest impact from the lowest base comparatively. So I was very, very impressed with him. Lockie, your breakout player? Yeah, same as Ando. It'd be Matty Fazler. And you're right, with no Tupo, no Harry Hooper. Um, the yep. disappearing man, Luke Jones. Um, there were so many of that type five um, when you looked at it on paper at the start of the season. And Matty Fazler was the glue that kept the rest together. I thought he had a great year. And I think we can all probably agree that if he does wear a gold jersey this year, he's probably earned it. Yep, agreed. My uh, breakout play is probably somewhat controversial, but I'm going to go with Luke Jones. And, and that's purely what? for the fact that for a player who did the amount of media that he did before the season and was the marquee signing, the fact that he didn't even get a whole minute on the field for the Reds this season. Um, no, I'm, I'm just joking. Uh, I'm uh, I'm going to go with Filippo <laughs> Dalgunu, um, and that is probably also a bit controversial. But I just think the when we when the Reds played him in the centres against the Chiefs, we weren't expecting him to put in the performances that he did. Yeah, and he was really influential there. Uh, and for a player that has been at this level, has played for the Wallabies, has shown what he can do on the wing, he's probably been a bit off the mark for the last few seasons and he hasn't been performing as well at Super Rugby level, making a few mistakes and, and giving away a lot of penalties. The performances against the Chiefs this year, I think, has done enough to cement his place, at least for 2024, and to, to guarantee him another, uh, another go-round with the Reds next year. Uh, so for me, that's, yeah. And, uh, and I think he was instrumental as well in, in the wins that he, in the way he played against the Chiefs, he was, um, instrumental in that win as well. Lucky Shane, the I'm just going to, yep, yep. That's uh, true, Shane, actually. Yeah, I rebels, just, mate. I just remembered that. <laughs> I just remembered that. <laughs> I'm stinging. He has a great year. We're thinking, oh, amazing. You got Fluke, you got Paisami, Dalgoon is an option, and he's been pinched again. Yeah, but I think that's a really good pickup for the Melbourne Rebels. And we move now into the Waratahs, who finished six on a ladder, six wins, eight losses, minus 21 for 31 points overall. For me, their season rating was similar to the Reds, five out of 10. 
Um, I was really like, don't get me wrong, Waratahs, if you're listening, I love you guys. I'm a fan. I've got your jerseys, getting a membership, but 2023 was not our season. There was a lot of hope. It was the year of the tar, as everyone was tongue-in-cheek saying, or at least I hope it was tongue-in-cheek. Um, and they just really failed to perform to the standards that they had set themselves. They're aiming for a top-four finish and got realistically nowhere near it. There was a huge points difference between sixth and fifth. So five out of ten for me. Mitch? I'll go five and a half. Pretty similar thoughts to what you said. The fact was that they were able to at least make, well, they were the second-highest Aussie team and uh, made the the playoffs. So, yeah, they weren't very convincing or very uh, – they didn't seem to have any plan at all in that um, playoff against the Blues in Auckland. But outside of mm-hmm. that, I thought there were some brief spa- – like showings of good rugby throughout the season. And if they can get their best 23 on the, on the field at once, particularly with Angus Bell, I think we're talking about a completely different season for them. So – they made yep. the playoffs, so that gets them at least five and a half. Lucky five and a half from me too. And I think you're right about um, Belly losing your biggest asset in the Ford Pack um, in what the first ten minutes of that game. I mean, that completely rocked you. And I'm not surprised that you're sort of one and five after he went down. Um, mm. But yeah, look, you're finishing what with a five and eight, no six and eight record. Um, the Highlanders win was uh, pretty good. The round two win against Drill was good. But I don't think there was a moment where the Tars put on a statement win that made us go, oh, it's their year. I don't think we saw that. And um, whether that's all down to the you know the chat that we've had ad nauseum about hyping too much before the Brumbies or whether it's injuries, yeah, it just didn't – it never clicked for the Tars this year, so five and a half. And that loss to Moana at the end of the year. At Michael Hooper's oh. last game at home was just such a hollow feeling. Such a hollow so feeling. So pathetic. It was pathetic. Anyway, um, season highlight. I am going to say my season highlight was the injury to Angus Bell for all of the reasons that Lockie said before. So I've taken the negative highlight there. I think it completely changed our season uh, for the worse. Mitch? I've got two. The first one is just la- Michael Hooper's last season in Sky Blue. He did not give up this season and he gave his all. And he was the only one it felt like at times in that Moana game that wanted to actually get get the victory, got the try at the end um, and was just absolutely gassed when he went off the field. So a highlight to see him play his last season for us. Uh, but in terms of the on-field rugby, it was the whatever round game it was against um, the Brumbies down in Canberra where they were winning for the majority of the game and then somehow managed to lose it by kicking it out on the full and just not finishing it off, which was really frustrating. Lucky. Yeah, uh, that Brumbies game was great. That was one of my favourite games of the season, actually. Um, but the highlight for me was um, Mahe Vailanu scoring late to beat the Highlanders. It was just so nice to see an Aussie team beat a Kiwi team at the death. It yep. never happens. It never happens. And it was so lovely to see it finally reversed um, in Aussie's favour. So that was the season highlight for the Tars. And I'll also just throw in there for Lockie's sake, the uh, <laughs> second game in Townsville against the Reds was a pretty dominant performance by the Waratahs oh, as well. This connection is so bad. What's going on? <laughs> MVP. Uh, Mitch, who is your MVP? Uh, MVP. I'll go Mark Nwanganito Asi. Yeah, he was he was pretty impressive in throughout the season. Lockie, your MVP? 
Bailano, I thought he was great. I, mm. um, I was going to have him as a breakout player, but there's a couple vying for that one. Um, I thought yep. whenever my head Bailano was on the field, he changed the game for the Tars. Yep. And interestingly enough, I'm going to say Dave Parecki was my MVP just because of the loss of Angus Bell, Harry Johnson-Holmes returning from injury. Our front row really was unimpressive for large parts of the season. And it was similar in a way to Matty Faisler for the Reds. I thought it was um I thought it was Parecki who was kind of holding that front row together for the Waratahs throughout the majority of the season, and he interchanged well with Mahi Vailanu as well. We move now into the breakout player, and I mean Max Jorgensen. I mean, who else are you were really going to pick as the breakout player? It seems that both of you are nodding. Lockie, you agree with that? Yeah, bang on. Yep, brilliant. Nothing else to say, Mitch. Who else? Uh, maybe Dylan Peach. I thought he had a, a great season and has definitely not a breakout earned though. his. No, well that that's why I'm I'm I, I'd go with Max Jorgensen as my number one, and if I had to pick someone else, I'd mm. say Dylan Peach. Yeah, yeah, f- completely fair enough, mate. Although Tony Co could be a good Co uh, could be a good shout in there as well. Um, we, we'll finish off now with the Brumbies. The Brumbies were the uh, shining light of Australian rugby. Finishing fourth, 10 wins, four losses, points for 81, with 46 points in total. Now, their season rating that I provided them was 8 out of 10. I thought they were very, very strong throughout the majority of the season. Um, the I won't go into kind of the, the highlights or the turning points or anything like that. I'll just leave it at 8 out of 10. Mitch, your score? Uh, 7. I thought they were strong Seven, throughout the okay. majority of the season too, but when it when it came to the crunch, they weren't able to deliver. And they letting go of that home quarter, the home semi final in the last few rounds really cost them. Yep. Yep. Well said. Good thoughts, Lucky. Seven and a half. Can't get an eight. Finishing fourth. Um, and yeah, we'll dive into it in a tick. But yeah, some of those games they dropped were unforgivable. And let's go into the season highlight. And for me, uh, the highlight was the opportunity throughout the entirety of the season for the commentators to be making regular references to the Simpsons for Corey Tools inclusion and the Corey hotline. So that was just one of the best parts of the whole time, of the whole season. Thank you very much, Corey Tool. Thank you, Stan Sports commentators. Lockie, your season highlight. Uh, beating the Blues down in Super Round, that was great. A big win over a finals playing team last year. And I actually thought it was the Brumbies' best performance of the year. They had some good ones down the track, but beating the Blues round two or three or whatever it was in Melbourne really shut up the Kiwis for a while. It was delightful. Yep, and you, we want nothing more than to shut Kiwis up. So, Mitch, season highlight for the Brumbies. Uh, the resting policy, I think, was my highlight this season. And that's what ultimately <laughs> was the reason that they weren't able to ice those last two games of the season. Uh, and by that point, it wasn't clear whether Eddie Jones had relaxed the laws or not. Darren Coleman seemed to say, make some comments in the press conference that it, they weren't, they were able to play their Wallabies players, even if it was in breach of the kind of resting policy. But then the Brumbies send a weakened team across to the Western Force and got done. So. Not quite sure what exactly happened there, but um, earlier on the season too, if they had been able to show up and, and push or get a losing bonus points against the Crusaders, then they're probably look, finishing a little bit closer at the top of the table as well. So um, yeah, not, not too impressed with that. Fair enough. Let's move into the MVP now. My MVP was Bobby Valentini. Uh, he's just 
a player like no other within Australian rugby, but particularly within a Brumbies. They don't have anybody else that can do what he can do. He played huge minutes throughout the season, was really effective within the carry. His work rate was high. He's become basically an 80-minute player, and he's nearly as effective in a 78th minute as he is with an 8th minute. So that is a wonderful thing to see for his progression. As a rugby player, Mitch, your MVP? Alan Alalatoa. I just thought that he showed this season that when he's not there, that even though they have good prop replacements, the players that come in aren't quite able to live up to the standard of performance that he puts in week in, week out. He's their captain. He's their leader. Without him, they don't look as half good as him. So, Alan Alatoa for me. Lockie? James Slipper. Yeah. Getting better with every single game. It's crazy to think how long he's been around. He's going to his fourth World Cup. That's how long James Slipper's been around. And this was arguably his best super season to date. So, I just, I loved seeing him go about his business. And the big fella in um, general play... Picking up a couple of tries late in the season. Terrible. Oh, those inside balls are just filthy. Just filthy. Yep. Yep. And I love some of the kind of turning, popping it out to the players, kind of doing a wide arc around on the outside. It's so good as well. He's he's really added a lot more uh, to his game this season. Uh, Lockie, who was your breakout player? Corey Tall. Easy one, easy one for me. Um, yep. Coming in off the seven circuit, everyone was talking about his pace and to see it in a 15s air arena where he doesn't have the space, he's still gassing blokes, still gassing blokes on the outside and the inside. And um, yeah, shoe in for me. Yep. yep. Mitch? Yeah, same. I don't think anyone else performed half as good as Corey Tool did without with the prep that Corey had. Uh, and so, yeah, it'd be sort of doing him a disservice to name someone else, I think. Completely fair enough. And my, um, my breakout player was Tom Hooper. Now, I know he only came back in kind of the second half of the season after his injury in trial games. He only played seven games and two of those were from the bench, but he was able to force his way into Wallaby's squad and has been absolutely just just incredibly impressive in the opportunities that he's had and really has everybody praising and raving about his performances at six. So he was my MVP purely to be different from simply saying Corey Tool. So ladies and gentlemen... That brings us to the end of our Super Rugby Pacific review of the 2023 season. Hope you've enjoyed our uh, chats through the players and let us know if you would have given the teams any different ratings as to what we've provided. And we're now going to move on to our State of Union conversation. Let's go. All right, we want to finish the pod off this week with having a bit of a chat and sort of taking stock of where we currently sit where rugby sits in the sporting landscape of Australia. Now, as we record, we are in the, it's Sunday night now as we record, but it's the bye week of the rugby championships. The Wallabies last week came off a pretty disappointing result against Argentina. We go again, we go up against the All Blacks for two tests in the Bledisloe Cup the next two weeks, and then we play France, and then we're into the World Cup. So before we dive into, I guess, the the wider uh, discussion around where the sport fits in the Australian sporting landscape, I just wanted to get both of your thoughts on where the Wallabies are at the moment, how we're progressing this season, and how optimistic we currently sit thinking about the World Cup in a few weeks. Um, Ando, I'll get you to start off. Uh, how optimistic am I about the Wallabies? Uh, I think what these first two games that we have lost within a rugby championship have done have uh, reinforced my belief that the timing of the Eddie Jones appointment was wrong from the outset. 
Um, I never agreed with the manner in which Dave Rennie was let go. And I also didn't think that um, we should have been letting a go, letting go of a coach at that point within the World Cup cycle. And I think these first two matches have proven why. I think we would have had far better performances if we'd actually held on to him. So as a result, I'm actually a little bit down about the Wallabies mm. at this point in time. Um, there's this like hope springs eternal part of me that 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 hopes and that has this like stupid irrational belief that we could actually still win the World Cup, um, but it's fighting against a cascading level of reality which is trying to bury it. So it's hard. It's hard, and yeah, I'm. I, I guess that's how I'm feeling right now about the Wallabies. Lockie, in your wider circles, the, your friends you talk to, your family, the rugby community that you engage in, what's the general feel that you're sensing from the community about rugby at the moment, about the Wallabies, about our chances of reclaiming the Bledisloe? It wasn't four weeks ago when Eddie Jones is doing press conferences saying, yeah, we're going to win the rugby champs, the Bledisloe and the World Cup. And everyone's like, yeah, you know what? We can. And we're sitting here as fans thinking that. What what are you feeling at the moment, and what's the kind of talk that you're you're hearing? It's an interesting dynamic because I I feel as though within my circle people are a bit cagey. It's there, there's lots of things going on at the moment, lots of events. I know we'll touch on it in a tick, but we're at a stage where if the Wallabies are two and zero, everyone's talking about them. But all the wins out of the sales, as Ando kind of mentioned, and that's frustrating because people are cagey. You know, it's almost like, do we even want to talk about the Wallabies? We're heading into the All Blacks. What does that mean? I don't know. And you kind of, there's a reluctance to buy in fully um, around my circle at the moment. And that's sad because it's a World Cup year. And historically, if we've been kicked out in the quarterfinals, we'll at least make a semi. That's the, what we've seen in the past couple of years so far. So there should be optimism. And it so much hinges on just getting that early win. You know, if Marky Mark runs away, scores that intercept try, and, you know, maybe the TMO has a look at Combank at the end of the game. Maybe <laughs> we're having a different conversation. No one's expecting us to go over and smash the box in Pretoria in week one under a new coach. I think that's probably unrealistic. But, yeah, it, it sucked. It sucked to lose at Argentina. So people are a little hesitant to have that buy-in at the moment. Mate, I went into the office on Monday and the guys at work know that I do a rugby podcast and uh, they literally, three guys turn around. One of them goes, how much do the Wallabies suck? And then the other one goes, how bad was that game on Saturday night? And I just had to go, yeah, yeah, it wasn't great, was it? Um, and just have to cop it. I honestly just had to cop it. And it's, it's so disappointing because you want to be able to rev people up and talk and, and, and highlight the good and the positivity within our rugby players and within the national setup. And yet it, it's really hard to point those positives out to the general public who maybe don't follow it as closely as we do, who do a podcast. And that's the thing too. That's the other frustrating thing is last week, the game wasn't bad it wasn't a bad game the score changed hands a number of times there was lots of tries scored yes the wallabies didn't win and they probably didn't deserve to win but it wasn't a bad game of rugby it's not like you've turned on and it's a 6-3 score line and there's only shots at goal and no one's scoring tries and there's 500 scrums like that would be a bad game of rugby it was actually a pretty entertaining game to watch as a rugby enthusiast and i think that's another indication of where the just the general public is in regards to rugby at the moment not just the wallabies but they're starting to fall out of love with the sport of rugby we're no longer featuring on most 
coverages after the games, like after the games, other than the Sydney Morning Herald and um, and some of the other publications, a lot of the times you'll go through the papers and you won't even see rugby mentioned, particularly in Sydney. I don't know if it's the same up there in Queensland, um, Lockie, but down here, rugby really struggles to get on, get media space in particularly print journalism. Uh, yeah, that's a bigger conversation about who's running those papers and the broadcast rights, I think, which we might yep. steer clear of tonight. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, col- you can only um, earn so many column inches if you're not the broadcaster. Um, but with you know, the people falling out of love with the game, I, I disagree really strongly because every weekend at Clubland up in Brizzy, we're seeing huge crowds mm. at Hospital Cup. It was packed um, down at Bottomley Park for Easts against Wests, and there's you know a stack of you know Super Rugby players and fringe Wallabies in those teams going around, and it's brilliant competition. There's you know six fighting for a top four at the moment. It's hotly contested. You've got teams that have typically struggled to play finals like Bond Uni leading the ladder. It's really really healthy. Um, but I agree translating that to national level and having that buy-in, you know, how you feel about your your park footy team compared to the Wallabies, you know, bridging that gap's essential. And, you know, this, the sooner we see people, you know, singing, waltzing Matilda, wearing a gold scarf, heading down the concourse to ANZ or, you know, it's just something like that, that buy-in. I don't, I don't know what we need to do to get that back, but I'm desperate for it. And whenever we find it, you just need to inject it straight in my veins. Whatever they're giving the Matildas at the moment, give us a bucket load and just pour it all over me. Yeah, we'll talk. Let's address the elephant in the room, and that is the FIFA World Cup. The The Women's Soccer World Cup is currently being held in Sydney, uh, in Australia and New Zealand, all around both nations. And as someone who doesn't follow soccer at all, doesn't have much to do other than what's sort of shown to me through advertising on social media and whatnot, I have noticed a, a strong presence and a support for the Matildas. And I don't, don't say there's anything wrong with that, but it feels like there is a general public support for the team in this World Cup and that people are wanting to support them. People are putting in efforts to go to games. That game, the opening game of the tournament was at Thursday night, broke a record for the most attended event, women's sporting event ever um, of attended. Now, the Wallabies played in Sydney the week before, and I follow a number of social, a number of rugby people on social media, and I don't remember seeing anything about their presence at the Wallabies game or following the Wallabies during that game against um, Argentina. But five, six, seven of them did attend the um that opening game of the fifa world cup so the question for me is why are these fans that are rugby fans and are lovers of our sport not supporting the wallabies when they're playing in their city but are then going to the uh the fifa world cup what do we need to do uh what does rugby australia need to do to help re-engage these fans and and make sure that they are showing up and supporting the wallabies and and adding voice when they're at the games and, and making it like an, a lively atmosphere at the games again. I'll jump in there first. And I think a really important element of it is the fact that the that football slash soccer um, is the most, it has the highest participation numbers of any sport within Australia. And so when you include both men and women, young and old, more people play football than any other sport at all. And so when you have the Socceroos, when you have the Matildas playing games, they're highly 
supported because of the groundswell of participation that there is within all all demographics of um, the Australian sporting landscape. And it's not particularly just a white sport. It's also not just a white or Islander sport, private school, public school. Everybody plays soccer. Um, and I think that is one of the factors that really ties in. And I think it's one of the things that rugby union needs to be doing is looking at ways in which it can lose the white, rich, snobby, from a Sydney perspective, upper North Shore private school label that it has and be far more inclusive as a game and better at reaching a wider audience in terms of participation numbers. Uh, Lockie, those are kind of my general thoughts. What what did you think in terms of what Mitch was asking? It's a funny one for me because I'm really excited about the FIFA World Cup being in Australia. It's a huge coup for women's sport across the country and in New Zealand as well. And I really like the Matildas. I support the Matildas. My partner plays soccer and futsal and we like watching it. But at the end of the day, people are supporting the Matildas because there is A, massive public goodwill yep. and B, because they're winners. And the B is critical. You get on a bandwagon because a team wins. Mm. You get behind them because they have recognised global superstars, your Sam Kerr's, your Ellie Carpenter's, your Caitlin Ford's. These are all becoming household names across the world because the Matildas are winning. Winning fixes everything. <laughs> if we're coming into a World Cup year, and we know this, if we're coming into a World Cup year and the Wallabies have come off you know, a series win against England, if we've picked up that MCG win against the All Blacks, you know, these tiny little margins, everyone's on that Wallabies bandwagon. But we're not winning at the moment and people are off us because it's not cool to back teams that aren't winning. Mm. Tilly's coming through is amazing. I love seeing it. And 75,000 is a great thing for sport across the country. But I guarantee you, if the Wallabies are banking the same wins and having that same record, everyone's wearing gold down at the Wallabies. A really simple thing, I'll just jump in there, is that the um, Matildas have played 21 games in 2023 and 2022, and they've won 15 of them, drawn one, lost five. The Wallaroos, if the Wallaroos or the Wallabies had that record, I can definitely tell you that the crowd numbers are going to be so much better and the feeling within a stadium will be far more positive as well. Mm. Uh, winners are grinners, and the landscape that we play in as the Wallabies is entirely different to what other teams around the world have to face. Nobody else has to play the All Blacks as much as we do. Nobody else has to play the Springboks as much as we did, um, or at least South African players. But um, mm. it's just we're... We need to change the environment in which Australian rugby is operating in because if we keep doing the same things and just hoping for change, it's, it's insanity. Okay, so being positive, looking forward, we sit here on the cusp of a golden decade of rugby as it's being spoken about. We talk about uh, the events that are coming up for Australian rugby. We've got the Lions Tour in 2025. We've got the World Cup in 2023 later this year, then the Lions Tour in 2025 home world cup in 27 fem women's world cup in 29 and the olympics in 32 so there's a lot of opportunity for rugby to be in the spotlight for the wallabies to be doing well to be getting that groundswell back getting people back involved and in love with the game if you both had a magic wand and could just twirl it to do one thing that rugby australia could do to ensure the success of the game in the next 10 years, what would it be? Uh, I'll jump in first, and I'm going to say it is to drastically increase funding 
to non-private schools or government schools, as we call them in New South Wales, uh, for rugby programs, offering both coaching and um, equipment required for boys and girls to be playing a game. So a huge funding increase to government schools would be my my suggestion. Lockie? More of these would be my answer. So things like um, private and independent creation of content drive so much engagement. So RA can only do so much. You've got your marketing teams, you've got commercial teams, you've got communications, everyone's pushing out. But the success of so many other arrival codes comes from independent creators who buy in massively and put their heart and soul into it. If we're seeing, you know, 20 more of these popping up, if we're seeing interest and access to players and coaches mm. expand over the next decade, you're going to see a huge audience open up. So I would love for the biggest assets in rugby, which is the players and the backroom staff, to be open and willing to share all their stories over the next decade. That's what's going to buy in that interest and that's what's going to drive success too. Fantastic. Good good comments, both of you. If I, One thing I would like to see, and it's one small thing, and that's to make the women's game as professional as possible as soon as possible. We can start paying our players to pay, play, pay our players to play now <laughs> and get them not having to work two jobs and fit their training in on these crazy schedules. We've already seen what they're capable of against um, the USA a few weeks ago. If we can get them to a level of the, the teams that they're playing, we come up against the other teams in the world 15 first division in a few weeks. And I think that's going to be a bit of an eye-opening wake-up call for us. Um, we're going to go into that as the only non-professional team at that level. So it's going to be really important for us to be able to get the support into our women. And if we can do that, um, we can then start to get players back from the NRLW, back from the state of origin, back from the NRL, all of those um, side competitions that are currently going on that are stealing our talent because we have much more that we can give these women in return other than monetary benefits. Um, and if we can get them winning, we can get them being successful like the Matildas, we can get that groundswell and then we can get people engaged. And if they can see that they're, that the Wallaroos are performing well, then that's going to make them want us to, to tune in and watch the Wallabies as well. So that's what I'd be doing. Yep, very well said, mate. Very well said. Do you want to wrap things up, mate? All right. I think that's, um, yeah, we've been going for a fair while. This is going to be a long podcast, but hopefully, and, and as we, as Lockie kind of said, the diehards, we're still here. We're going to continue to support the Wallabies. We'll be here cheering them on, and we've, we're still hopeful that they're going to win the World Cup later in the year. We're going to be, win the Bledisloe back in a few weeks. Yeah, we're going to do it all. Going... Next week, we'll be talking about a Bledisloe win. How Woo! good is that going to be? Can't yes, wait for that. Um, have, we got a, have we got a tip? A tip really quick before we wrap up? Fantastic, yeah. Yeah, let's, let's do, do it. it. Let's do it. Lockie, what's your tip? Wallabies by two. It's going to be a after the siren conversion. From Carter Bye. Gordon. Yeah, who's kicking it? From Carter yeah, Gordon. Nice. Okay, Ando? Yep. Uh, I'm going to go, okay. Now, this is hard. This is hard. I'm going to go Wallabies by five. Wallabies by five. It'll be tight, but we're going to get it done. I'm going to go Wallabies by one, and that's going to be for the All Blacks kicking it dead from the kickoff after we've scored a try, and then we, we go on and we, we get a penalty and kick it. That's what I'm going to say. 
Oh, I love it. It's all heart. I can feel it. But we're ready. I'm ready for a Bledisloe win. <laughs> it defies all logic and statistical evidence, but who cares? We're going to win. Uh, and that's, I think, you know what? I'm going to wrap it up. That's where we want to finish this pod. So, Lockie, thank you. Mitch, thank you. Me, thank you. It's been a lovely time being back and chatting with you all again. So, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for being with us. And we cannot wait to join you again next weekend after Lowly's absolutely smash the Kiwis down in Melbourne. So, have a wonderful smash week. And we'll catch you later. Bye. Bye.